Welcome to The Together Project, where we're bringing you fresh voices from seasoned role models to help you stretch and grow in your leadership. During each episode, you'll be hearing from your host, leadership expert, author of Developing Female Leaders, and self-proclaimed jazzercise queen, the incomparable Katie Cole. Katie always says the future isn't just male or female, it's together. So we'll be bringing you leaders who are passionate in their fields and creating a culture where everyone has a seat at the leadership table. Today, Katie is talking with Amber Smart, former director of analytics and version operations leader at lifechurch.tv. Big stuff. Data use is one of the new frontiers and an important tool for churches. Amber and Katie are talking about how to use metrics and data visualization to better inform leadership decisions in your ministry or church, and Amber will share some of her amazing personal story. You'll want to tell all your friends about this one, so let's grow together. Hi, Ministry Chicks. So glad to have you here today. We are here for another interview, and I'm so excited to have my friend Amber Smart with us. You will learn a lot from her today and be inspired by her story. So thanks for joining us. Uh, If you have any questions or if there's anything that you're wondering about Amber's life and journey or the information she's going to talk to us about, please go ahead and put it in the chat um, underneath the Facebook Live, and we will take your questions and answer them as best as we can. Amber, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Let me give our listeners just a little bit of information on you. Amber actually went to school for accounting, but in 2008, she joined the team at Life Church in Oklahoma City, which is where she went to church. And she joined the team with this new little project called Uversion. She was the operations leader. If you're familiar with Uversion, it's the Bible app on your phone that has over 300 million downloads now. So Amber was there at the very beginning and helped lead that team through all of that project and really ride the wave of that exploding. So I'm sure she'll have a lot to tell us about that experience. Uh, But then in 2013, five years later, she actually became the director of analytics at Life Church. And if you know anything about Life Church in Oklahoma City, it's a very large, I think it's the largest multi-site church in America. How many sites are there now? 31 now. 31 campuses. It's always growing. So I never quite have the number right. But if you know anything about their culture, they're very data-driven and metrics-driven. That's a part of what has allowed them to scale so seamlessly and be in so many different regions of the country. And so she has really been at the helm of that kind of new venture, looking at data and metrics and analyzing that, working with data visualization. And that's what she's going to get to a little bit later in the interview. So earlier this year, though, she decided to step into her side business full-time. It's called Smart Metrics, S-M-A-R-T. M-E-T-R-I-X data, smart metrics data, where she works with churches and businesses on capturing relevant information and figuring out a way to visualize it in a meaningful way that allows us as leaders to make better decisions. This is kind of a new frontier as our digital age comes into being. And she has really been critical in helping kind of bridge the gap, especially from business into nonprofit and church world. Uh, But I know she works with a lot of businesses too. So she's got a lot to share with us. Plus she's been married for 23 years and has three kids. So she's been balancing a lot in her ministry life. Amber, just excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of my story. So why don't we start with that? I think all of our listeners are always so excited to hear your leadership journey, how you ended up getting into ministry, working on these kinds of projects, and also how you personally have sort of navigated doing ministry life. I first began serving at Life Church, and I believe my first like 
gig of like full-time serving was I washed all the tablecloths that were used in the main area. Um, I love to do laundry, which is kind of this weird, that's weird. I just like to clean, but I'm sure that goes with the details of analytics somehow also. (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of related. Um, Yeah. So very detail oriented. So I did that. And then once my two older kids, we have three, Um, Our third one we adopted and the first two are biological. And so when our first two biological kindergarten and above, so into elementary school full time, I didn't really know who I was or what I was going to do with myself. Um, Always wanted to be a stay at home mom. And fortunately, I was able to do that when they were super little. So once they got into school, I found I had some free time and actually had this itch to use my brain again. And so started volunteering, which then led into helping in the finance area, obviously, of coming back from an accounting background and just being numbers driven and loving the details. Did that for about a year. And then the opportunity opened up on what is called the Digerati team at Life Church. And so what I did is I worked um, directly with Terry Storch and Bobby. And we um, did this crazy thing of launching a an app, which none of us even really knew what that was or what it meant. I remember the first probably six months of working with them, I felt like they were talking German. I would have to literally write down words in meetings and then like Google them because I just had no clue what they were talking about. But the reality is, is we were all trying to figure it out. Obviously it was crazy. So anytime you're dealing with kind of a tech startup type thing like that, everybody's learning as you go. And this was really in the coming of age of all of this. You guys were on the forefront, really the industry, the technology industry in general was just beginning to really get involved in this. Yes. We submitted the Bible app the week that apps were created. We were one of the first apps submitted. The app store opened the same time we created that. So yeah, so it was very foreign. Like I remember I had a razor phone and I thought that was really cutting edge and I just couldn't understand like, okay, app, I just couldn't understand this whole, like, what are we doing? So yeah, it was crazy. We were just um, learning. All of us were as, as we were going. So we were building the plane in the air, so to speak. Um, absolutely crazy, but a lot of fun, rapid growth. I mean, absolute insanity at times. So then I was trying to learn to manage that as well as small kids. And during this process, we also adopted. We did foster care first, which then I believe three years after we fostered, we adopted him. I had a lot happening all at once. It was absolutely really crazy. I can say a lot of fun. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the tech industry and about how all that works. And it was a great season, but it was really, really hard. And it wasn't until the last couple of years that I went through a difficult season where I learned a lot about myself and I can reflect back and see, this is why I did this, or this is why I struggled with this, or why this is how I contributed to any frustration I felt or the difficulties I had or what have you. So yeah, it was, it was really crazy. So about the time we uh, decided to adopt our littlest, um, I realized I was burning the candle at both ends. New version exploding. Like literally we had developers on the other side of the world working for us as well as, you know, a local team. So the emails never stopped. So I'd go to bed. The developers on the other side of the world are working. I wake up to 200 emails. Uh, you worked for Bobby, right? You mentioned him earlier. Tell our listeners a little bit who that is and what his job is. He, I would imagine, is a unique guy to work for. 
Oh yeah, he's great. So Bobby is, um, he's on the DLT at Life Church, and he's responsible for anything new or innovative. He's super great at thinking of things that don't even exist, creating something out of nothing, which is really challenging for me because I'm a very detailed person. So I got to see it, feel it, touch it to understand it. And so abstract ideas were extremely difficult and challenging for me at the beginning. Like I just couldn't, you know, it's like an app. I don't get it. I don't understand. I've never seen it. Like what? And it it was, it was that. So learning, okay, I just think a little bit differently. And so um, I learned a lot from him and Terry both, both exceptional leaders, invested a lot in myself, took a big risk on me because obviously I have no clue what I'm doing. I just like the challenge. And so um, took the challenge on and um, they were great. Obviously, you have tension with your leaders who don't think like you do, but it was a good tension in the sense that they helped me learn to live in the gray. And so I'm a very black and white person. And so they just helped me learn how to exist in gray and it be okay and that I'm not failing. It's just gray. There's just a lot of unknown. And so I had to learn to operate that way, think that way. So it was great. It stretched me in a lot of really good ways. So extremely smart people, extremely driven, very kind, um, very great to work with. So it, it was a great, I have great memories. I mean, it was a great. I know you were an answer to prayer for them because when you're someone who lives in the gray, having someone who understands black and white and can answer 200 emails in a day is amazing. So I know it was a good team, obviously. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, we had a good partnership because we were very, very different. So <laughs> talk a little bit. You mentioned you kind of hit a wall a little bit where you sort of had a bit of a wake up call, I think, on just how you were pacing yourself and what your real boundaries and limitations were? I would say I had two probably defining um, moments in my life that really were painful, but also a lot of growth. And I'm thankful for them. I can look back on them and and be thankful. We adopted Dylan, our youngest. Um, He was severely neglected the first 18 months of his life. And so there was just pathways in his brain that were not developed the way that they needed to be. So he struggles with reactive attachment disorder. So it was very strange when we got him at 18 months, like you couldn't connect with him. You couldn't console him. We just knew immediately something is not right. There was a lot of uh, development delays, disorders. There wasn't a whole lot of resources at that time out there. Um, We know a lot more now than we did then, even, you know, six years ago. Um, We've had him eight years, but um, I would say six years ago is when we really got, okay, we're going to adopt him. So we've got to get some significant resources up until then you're just in survival mode because you're, you don't know how long you're going to have them. Right. So it's like, you're just, just love them as much as you can and survive. And that was pretty traumatic for our family. Honestly, our older two biological, there's seven years between Dylan and our daughter and then 10 years between him and our son. And so now they're 19, 16, and nine. But at the time, our biological kids were in those tender preteen ages. And it was a great learning experience for them. It was pretty traumatic because he was not quote unquote normal. I mean, I know normal doesn't really exist, but there was definitely some challenges there. So I'm trying to manage this U version that's exploding and we're going in 50 different directions all at the same time. And it's just so much growth. And like I say, none of us knew what we were doing. So we were just 
in survival mode there. So I was in survival mode at work. I was in survival mode at home. I didn't know how to raise this kid. Traditional parenting methods didn't work. So what worked with my older two was not working here. It was just a lot of tension. It was very difficult. And I remember having a day where I was like, I just want to get in my car and just drive. I don't even know where I'm going to go. I just got to go. I mean, it was just very done. Mom needs to drive away. (laughs) Yeah. I can't manage either. One of these worlds in and of itself would be overwhelming. Can't escape it. You know? So it was um, absolutely. Well, and when it's your work and home, then there's no reprieve. There's no rest. There's no, because sometimes people have uh, big jobs and they come home and kind of recoup, or sometimes people have tough home lives, but they go to work and kind of recoup. You were being pulled literally at both ends with no real reprieve. It was crazy. I today, because of my second story that I'll get to in a second, I now see how I could have made different changes, how I could have set boundaries, how I could have just been more aware of my unhealthy tendencies and why I was drawn to that and why I stayed in that or how I contributed to the chaos or the stress. So I remember thinking something's got to give. I cannot continue to live like this. I felt really old. I didn't sleep well. There was just so much tension. I just had no peace. I mean, it was just absolute insanity. And I remember thinking something's got to give. And so what I did is made the difficult choice to step away from the Uversion team and into this role that was the role I was in before I left the organization, which was a new role for the organization. And so I was grateful that they gave me the opportunity, again, try to figure something out that we didn't find myself constantly being put in these strange positions of nothing's defined, let's figure it out, let's learn. And learner is my number one strength. So I can see why I'm drawn to that. So I came into this role, the analytics, we did not have an analytics team at the time, didn't even have, that word wasn't in anything really. We just knew we had enormous amounts of data, but we weren't doing anything with it. And so I originally sat on the finance team. And so I was meant to collaborate with those that were doing the financial reporting, well, then I was going to see, okay, how can we analyze it? So once we realized the scope and the magnitude of data that we had everywhere, well, that gave me some breathing room at work where it was like, okay, I'm not having, you know, waking up to 200 emails every day. It's just... I kind of control the pace of how we're figuring this out. So right, was- it's not actually in crisis, right? You're actually developing yeah. something new. So there's a lot to do. Your ideas are probably going, but no one's demanding. You're not falling behind. Right. Yeah. I didn't have all these voices, you know? So, so that was great. And I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity, which then led to me discovering Tableau because we had all of this data. I know enough tech stuff to be dangerous. Like I can talk with developers. You don't want me standing up your warehouse, your data warehouse, but I can talk to somebody who does that and, and we can communicate and they can understand what I'm needing and I can use their language, but you don't want me doing it. So I know just enough to be super dangerous. So we found Tableau because it didn't have a heavy reliance on IT. And so it was, I knew just enough to, to get that going. So, so explain started- a little bit about what Tableau is. Sure. So it's a data visualization software that allows you to connect to just about anything that can house data. So it can be a spreadsheet, a warehouse, an API, a web data connector. It can be just about anything that has the ability to store data. Because we had data existing in all these places, but I was like, how am I going to get it out? You know, like, how am I going to, what am I going to do with it? Use that and started connecting to all these data 
pieces. At first, it was a lot of Excel. It was just big, massive databases that I didn't even have the schema to. So I had to just kind of, I, I equate it to putting a puzzle together with like no picture of what the puzzle even is. So you're just looking for corner pieces and edge pieces, you know, doing that. And then that really took off in the organization. Um, we were able to experience some really big wins pretty quick that allowed us to decide, okay, this is where we should invest because it's not cheap. It does scale, allows you to start small and go bigger, but honestly, it's not like something that was you would just throw any money at. There was a significant investment, but we were able to prove that we were going to get a return on that investment and made some significant immediate changes to how we operated and some of our, our processes that allowed us to get people plugged in faster, allowed us to see where people were getting dropped in the process and just experience some efficiency wins overall within the organization. I love doing that. I um, absolutely love the tool. Was a Tableau ambassador for a couple of years and then led the Oklahoma City metro area Tableau user group. So did that, really loved it, enjoyed it. Kids were growing up. Dylan was getting good, was getting some good therapy, tried different medications, really changing a lot and doing well. And I know just having more energy for him and more mental capacity to just be patient with him was really important. So I believe that was really a wise move and decision. But I will tell you, it was very, very difficult because I, I loved what I did so much before that there was a season of grieving involved. And so it was like this scary transition of, okay, I know I can't keep doing this, but I've got to do something, but I don't know what to do. And it's scary. And it's like, well, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I walk away? And then this is, you know, and you just battle all this. And what I've learned through all that is you've got to learn to just trust your gut and trust that, you know, God is good. You'll find where you need to be and what you need to be doing. But it's easy to say, but when you're walking through it, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, those are all steps of faith, right? So God's calling you to reprioritize more in alignment with what he has for you. And he's opening doors, but is it the right door? Should you wait? Should you jump? Should you hold fast in the job because it'll get better? Just all those things. It is really just a, and really no one can make the decision for you except you, right? It's just right. really between and, you and God. And I really had to sit down and go, there can be a hundred version operation leaders. My kids only have one mom. Yes. Like nobody else can be my kid's mom. And so that helped me make the decision of I have to, I have to focus and reprioritize towards my family. But it was, it was so difficult because I felt like I was losing something. So there was this grieving process because where I went to was a blank slate, which is great on one hand, because then you get to help create and develop it. But on the other hand, you don't, you're not guaranteed it's going to equate to anything or have success or, you know, be fulfilling, you know, nothing was defined. I remember there was no job description. It was just like, try this, you know, see what you and, and no guarantees either. No guarantees. Right. But really when it came down to was me realizing no one else can be my kid's mom. There is no one else. And so I have to, that helped me go, okay, this is definitely going to be the priority. I can't go wrong. And I always try to think when I'm making decisions and things are difficult, I'm always like, where am I going to have the least amount of regret? 
silly things like if there's a tornado and we live in Oklahoma and there's a tornado, I can go get my kids or I can stay home, but I'll probably lessen my regret if I go ahead and go get them and bring them home and be safe versus if I just try to risk it. Cause if they got hurt or killed, then I would constantly play the what if game. You know what I mean? So that's just kind of my rationale. That's okay, a great question. Well, it's really a long-term question. It's like, when I look back on this, what will I feel best about? Given the information I have, what will I feel best about the decision I made? Yeah. And sometimes fear of making the wrong decision can paralyze us, but switching it to a question like that helps us get through the fear part and just make a good logical decision. Like you said, we just have to trust that God is with us and that we can make the best decision possible and then be okay with the outcome. Absolutely. So then that leads me to my second crisis in 2016, ironically through data visualization. So we were building up this concept of data analysis and data visualization within the organization, got pretty busy, kind of crazy again. So we had about 300 staff members that were using this tool on a regular basis, had about 500 staff total, but about 300 of them were using the tool on a pretty consistent basis. We had over 2,500 dashboards at the time. So it was, now I'm back into the 200 emails. I'm back into trying to manage all this. Again, I'm the common denominator in both of these scenarios. So I'm stepping back and going, okay, um, I'm finding myself here again. And then my world completely blew up, ironically, through data visualization. When I was looking at my phone bill and I was looking at a pie chart and I noticed that my husband had excessive text compared to the whole family. He, he was sharing like 60% of this pie chart. I could not figure that out. I couldn't understand. I knew he was struggling. I knew he wasn't, he was seeing a therapist and stuff and was just struggling through life, but it's through the data visualization. This is what I have always told people. That is a little ironic. <laughs> yes. Right. So data visualization leads to the conversations that leads to discoveries. So through that conversation, I discovered my husband was having multiple affairs. So it was, this was in 2016. And so to say that my world was rocked, I don't want to get emotional, is an understatement. So um, yeah, it was honestly though, when I look back on it, it was the best thing that it could ever have happened to me. As you can probably tell, I like to be in control. I like to plan things out. I always tested super high on reality testing at work. So I was the one that they brought in for the really difficult high profile interviews because I could, I could see what wasn't there. I could read between the lines, you know, I could really understand people and figure them out. And so it rocked my world because I thought I was totally side. I had no idea, like none, like completely like what? Um, so my world completely blew up. 2016 was a very difficult year, but it was good because it we separated on two separate occasions. I even got a divorce attorney at one point. I never filed, but my divorce attorney was ready, was just waiting for me to give her the green light. But through 2016, that whole entire year, I really had to step back and do a lot of self-reflection because nothing will make you almost implode internally than something like betrayal, because then you begin to think, well, was I not enough? Or why would you want this person over me? Or what was going on? And so it was a year of a lot of self-reflection and then a lot of therapy. And so through that year, I learned that 
I look back at my life and some of the stuff that I've shared and I realized I worked and overworked myself on a consistent basis because I thought that would guarantee love. So if I work and I'm amazing and I go above and beyond, then those around me will have no choice but to love me, right? And so very dysfunctional point of view. But at the end of the day, that's all we're wanting. We're all of us are just wanting to be loved. I then became aware of my workaholism and how I contributed to the scenarios that I kept finding myself in. And so once I processed that and worked through that and no longer felt this need to seek out the love, but just felt God's presence and God's love with me through my family life blowing up, my workaholism just kind of went away. Hmm. And really what I tell people is workaholism wasn't the problem. It was my solution. My problem was that I was looking for a way to guarantee the love of those around me. And I knew I was a workaholic. I mean, my leaders would talk to me about it. They were like, God, you need to like slow down. Um, And I would try. But when you're trying to solve the wrong problem, then you're not going to come up with the resolution. So I realized my problem was I was trying to find a way to guarantee the love of those around me. So good. Such a great way to reframe that. I don't want to work over 40 hours. Like I, now it's just gone. Like I don't struggle with it. Um, and through this process, I learned that I didn't trust myself. And I guarantee you, my, my teammates from the past would tell you that they sensed that, that I didn't trust myself. I remember getting some of that feedback on like 360s of she really should just be more out there and like be more, more confident or confident. sure of yourself. Is that kind of it? Yeah, just confident and just and asking more of those around me, you know, instead, it was like, I would kind of hold back, but then kill myself and taking it all on versus getting those around me to share the load and, and be a part and collaborate. Yeah, it is hard to lead well, when you're constantly trying to get people to like you and love you, and you don't want to ask too much, because that might violate that connection. Versus just leading. And yeah, it's that dilemma uh, I talk about in the book of, uh, do I want to be liked or do I want to be respected? Mm -hmm. And when we're trying to be liked and getting people to like us, we tend to hold back. When we just really only care about being respected as a leader, we can demand more of people and they do respect us, even if they don't like us as much on some days. And I feel like I finally just got it. Do you know, (laughs) and I'm 41 and it's, Man, if I knew what I knew now in my 20s, I just think, gosh, you know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so now, and so through the whole process, 2016 being a very difficult year, my husband and I went to um, a fair recovery in Austin. Absolutely phenomenal. And they helped us get back on track. And so we now go down there a couple times a year and we mentor um, other couples who are going through this and we um, online, they have an online program that we also help mentor. And the transformation that I saw my husband go through was amazing. In all honesty, when we went down to fair recovery, it was my last, I'm just going to do this to say I did it to clear my conscience. And when I file for divorce, I'll feel like I've done everything I could, like my conscience will be clear. And so we went down there and they gave us tools and resources that were absolutely amazing and helped us both get to a healthy place individually so that we could have a a healthy marriage. Honestly, some of the worst advice I got going through that time was from the church and from 
uh, I, I won't say the church, but just Christians, um, mm-hmm. a lot of them don't know what to say. A lot of them, and I came to this conclusion that as a society, we don't know how to suffer well. And anytime you see someone suffering, we don't know what to do. We either say the wrong thing or say nothing, which is both very difficult. Um, And then when you're going through betrayal, uh, you have to grieve and you go through PTSD and you go through all this trauma, but people don't bring you casserole dishes like they do when you lose a family member or they don't give you space. Who are you going to talk to about it? And I remember feeling like my mind left. I would sit down to do a report that I had done for five years and I couldn't remember how to do it, you know? And then I realized, gosh, I've always prided myself on my intellect and my ability to figure things out. And then now that's gone. And I'm like, well, who am I? You know, and there's a whole just crisis that happened that honestly was the best thing. Reality is, is you can't understand it. There's nothing, you can't analyze human suffering. And I'm used to, and that's what I do. I analyze everything all day. And my saying is, if you can't analyze it, overanalyze it, right? It was the perfect storm. And honestly, it was a gift. I tell people it was a gift disguised as heartbreak. My husband is a completely different person today. I feel like I'm a completely different person today. And honestly, our marriage looks completely different. And it wasn't my fault at all that he made the choices that he made at all. I don't own any of that. But I can look back and see that I was not investing in my marriage the way that I do today. And I wasn't prioritizing my relationship with him like I am today. We just look at each other differently and we don't, I don't expect him to fulfill anything for me. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, we just enjoy each other and we actually have a lot of fun and it's great. And it's honestly was one of the best things. And so going through that process in 2016, just being like, well, the awful year, 2017, was a lot of healing, just a lot of my brain coming back, lots of long walks, me learning to appreciate nature. I mean, I remember thinking, I didn't realize the weather around me. I was always in offices with no windows. And so I never paid attention to nature or anything like that. And so I had to faith deconstruction. I had to kind of go back and go, actually had to stop reading the Bible for a little bit because I was like, I, who is God? Who is he to me? And what I was experiencing in this healing and restoration in some places didn't align with what I had always been taught. Mm. And so it was like, I just got really confused. And this, so 2017 was really just this faith deconstruction, rebuilding it back up and going, okay, who is God? Who am I? What's my purpose? What am I going to do with my life? Am I doing the right thing with my life? Where can I bring the most value? And just self-discovery and looking back and going, man, I totally contributed to that chaos. I contributed to finding myself in that spot. Why didn't I have the courage to say, I need more team members. I need help. I need assistance. I need all these things. I held back. I didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to rock the boat and have them possibly not love me. And so going through 2017, I got to the end of it and I just was like, I just feel like there's more out there. And I felt like my heart was healed. I don't think you ever get over betrayal. It permanently changes you. It wasn't my identity. So it was like, it was just something that happened to me. It changed me, but for the better. And 2018, I was like, you know, I just feel like there's more out there. I constantly had churches and businesses reaching out to me. I feel like I can contribute at a grander scale and actually had the confidence and the desire to take that risk. Cause that's really scary to leave a regular paycheck health care coverage, which hello is completely crazy expensive when you do it on your own. 
and just that consistency. And I worked with a phenomenal team. I loved all of them. It was very difficult. I remember processing it with my husband took me months, seriously, to process this decision. I remember just like bawling. So I was like, but I love everybody. I love my team. Um, But I could just sense like, this is not where I need to be. Like there's more, I need to go and do more. And so long process, seriously, was not an easy decision. But the longer I delayed making that decision, the more I felt this internal self-betrayal, if that makes sense, where it was like, I can keep doing this and I can keep going through the emotions, but I feel like I'm betraying something within myself. Like there's something in me that I know I need to be doing more. And the longer that I keep putting it off or refusing to do that or refusing to have the faith and just jump and do it, I got so miserable inside this weird, like self-internal tension. And I just thought, okay, I'm not going to repeat what I've done in the past and let this get to an unhealthy place. Like I need to just have the courage. Do I believe? Do I know? And and I tell people this, you know, it just is scary. So you're going to act like maybe it's not what you know, <laughs> but you know, and you know, when you need to do something else, but you don't have any guarantees. So it's super scary. So I just was like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I had a ton of support from Life Church. I had a great leader who was totally walked me through that process that I'm extremely grateful for. And so I took that leap and my husband left his career. His affair partners were associated with his career. And he just felt like God was telling him, you're going to have to go a different path. And so he became a full-time student, which is also scary. So the same time that I made the choice to walk away, he no longer had an income. He became a full-time student, so he's completed his first year. He wants to become a therapist and help other men who are struggling with betrayal and walking through that process. And so here I'm like, okay, now I'm the sole breadwinner. My husband's in school, and I've just got to make this leap. But I will tell you, it is one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I have so much fun. Yeah, I make great money, but it's not even really about that. I look back and I go, why did I wait so long? Why did I wrestle with this decision so much? Because it really is great. And I feel like the more that you are wrestling with something like that is kind of that's the, the more tension you feel is probably an indicator that you really need to do it. That what's going to be on the other side is really good. I don't that's know if- so good, Amber. Well, I just, I love the story. I mean, wow, what an incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing that because I know there are a lot of people connecting with it. And I just love the, the way you maybe analyze your life, but just how you can see yourself hitting the same lids and then God really getting a hold of you and bringing really a crisis of faith and belief in yourself and in Him, and then how He rebuilds that so you can live a different way. I mean, this is really a story of transformation in so many different ways. I just think that's incredible. Thank you. So now you work uh, primarily full-time with data visualization and helping particularly churches and what we're talking about, uh, really collect data and understand it. So talk to us a little bit about why this is important, some of the results that you've seen, and explain a little bit about what you mean. Like we're talking an Excel spreadsheet turned into a graph or turned into a chart, like all the way up to what you do with Tableau. Talk to us about why this is important in ministry. Sure. sure. So I think particularly in ministry, it's important because those in ministry, for the most part, are very strong relationally. Otherwise, that's what drew them into the the ministry part. 
bringing in the business side, the data side, the number side, that type of thing is probably going to be a secondary strength to them. And so what I do is I think everybody can understand a picture. Like you don't have to teach people how to understand a picture. So like if I showed you an icon of a shopping cart, I don't have to explain to you what shopping means. You know what I'm saying? So like everybody, it's like this pictures are like a universal language that everyone understands. And so if we can communicate information through pictures, then that saves the ministry leaders time. They don't have to try to tap into a strength that may not be a super strong one for them. Plus I know what it's like in ministry. There, there's never enough time. It always just feels like that. Right. So I'm not going to send a worship leader a spreadsheet. A, I guarantee you he's not going to, he or she's not going to open it. And if they do open it, they're going to immediately close it because it's like whatever. But if I send them a dashboard and we talk about cover costs and it's just pictures, they're probably going to look at it and within a couple of minutes be able to walk away with some good information to help them make better choices. So again, it's good visual that leads to conversation that leads to discoveries. And the dashboard's not going to give you the answer, just like a spreadsheet's not going to give you the answer. But how can I communicate this enormous amount of information to you and you be able to internalize it within 30 seconds and display it in a way that like an eight-year-old could understand it. Like you're not going to have to sit there and just really like, okay, I need the room quiet. I need everybody to focus, you know, make it where it's just quick and easy like that. So data visualization can really come from anything. You can do great data visuals in Excel. There's a lot of tools out there that, that exist. I prefer Tableau simply because there's a lot you can do with it and it scales. So you don't have to make this massive investment at the beginning. You can just make and they offer nonprofit pricing, and then it kind of just scales. And there's actually even a free option that's kind of there that can work. So my goal is to simply communicate enormous amounts of data, which we all have, in a way that makes it, that leads to the conversation that leads to discovery. So does that make sense? Give us a couple examples. So what are some things that people, if they're running a ministry, if they're director of a ministry or a department or a campus, what would be some of the first things they could start using data visualization for? Sure. So one of the most important things that I um, feel like a lot of ministries overlook is knowing their audience. So do you know who you're ministering to? Like, do you know? Do you know that your community that you're around? How many people, how many families are within a five mile radius of you? So we'll do like a demographic study. We'll pull that information together and visually see, okay, well, maybe if you have multiple locations, how do your locations differ? Maybe one location might have, might struggle with like giving, but if we did a demographic study, we might find that they're in an area that has a lot of poverty, you know? So it's understanding your audience. So I I usually start with that. The second is just measure what's happening currently. It doesn't, what you can measure with just counting how many people attend something is crazy. So just two data points. Let's say you have attendance and you have giving, which almost every body's going to, I'm assume have. Every church is actually good with those data points. Most people measure those two things. <laughs> okay. So you got those two things. You would be shocked at what we can do. So we can trend. I can show you a couple of visuals if you want. Yes, please do that. Okay. So let me go up here and share this here. 
So we have one crazy fact about um, just how much data exists right now is that 90% of all the data in the world that has been, that we know have now has been generated in the last two years. So that's absolutely. Wow. 90% of the data points available that we can buy or look up or Google has been generated in the last two years. Two years. So none of us are really that behind then is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, right. Not really. Okay, so let's get through here. Um, and I can make this presentation available if anybody Yes, because I'm seeing lots of things I want to learn more about. So that would be great. Okay, so, so we have on these two, we have attendance and giving. So we're just charting. One of the challenges we had at Life Church is that our year started the first Sunday of the year. So it wasn't January 1, it could be whatever. So the first thing we did was, okay, let's create a calendar table where we give week numbers. And so we're comparing week numbers instead of dates. And so just looking at, each week, year over year, this year, last year, compared to your projection, and putting those together and saying, okay, do we see similar patterns happening? Are there trends that are similar between those two? Then we can aggregate it. And instead of looking at weekly, we can look at the average weekly for each month because months are going to have different number of weeks per year from year to year. And so we'll say, okay, what is the average looking like? How is that changing and trending <laughs> with giving and attendance? And then we'll aggregate it up again another level and say, what was the average weekly per year? And do we see similarities happening there? And then we can look at facility efficiency. So if we have the number of people that come and sit in the auditorium and we know the number of chairs that we have available for them, we can then just divide those two numbers and see what percentage of capacity were those services. Seat turns is kind of a similar thing, but I'll kind of breeze through that. What we do know is that if a service gets at 80% capacity, the church will likely stop growing, even if other service times are offered. And when I say your prime services, those would be like your Sunday morning at 10, 10, 30, 11, those type of times. Because if you think about it, if you were unchurched or didn't go to church, when someone said, what time is church? They would always say Sunday morning. That's just kind of the thing. So those that are visiting or maybe new or seeking a faith are more likely to go to your Sunday morning services. So if those Sunday morning services, which I'll call prime services, if they're at 80% capacity or above, your church will likely hit a ceiling and stop growing. It's just this weird phenomenon that we would see time and time again. And I have two clients I'm working with now that we're seeing this. They're being stretched and challenged to either provide more services or encourage those that are attending the 10 o'clock that are maybe regular attenders to transition to other service times. And that's just with vision. It's, it's communicating, hey, we want to make, we want a seat available to those who are seeking Christ. So if you would just, you know, take your family and go to a different service time, you're going to make space for those people. And so most people don't have a problem with that at all. They just have to be, have vision of, okay, this is what we're going to be. Yeah. They just have to understand that if I'm coming to the 10 o'clock service, someone who's brand new might not have a place to sit. Exactly. Exactly. So here's an example where we were looking at two service times. There's one, two, three, four, five, six services at this particular location. You can see their prime, which I circled in yellow at 65 and 49. So my recommendation is don't change anything, but then you've got a location where their Sunday are their 10 and 11 are at 91% and 87%. 
they need to add a service and encourage those to move over. The non-prime, those other services, if they're at 40% capacity, they're going to feel good. They're going to feel energetic, even though 40% might might seem low. You're not going to walk in and think this place is empty. Um, okay, so let me just rephrase. So you want to fill, you want to be able to start a service when you can fill the room to 40%. Otherwise it feels kind of dead, right? Even if it's a small room or a big room, that 40% mark, and then you want to grow it to the 80%. But once you reach that, you need to do something different so that you don't lose your momentum for that service time. Exactly. So if a room's at 80% capacity, if a family of four walked in right as worship started, they're not going to find four seats together. And that's just weird and awkward and uncomfortable, right? So here's another location. Their um, their Sunday mornings are at 10 and 1130 or at 96%, 95%, and all of their other service times are at 40% or above. And there's actually not another time slot. Like they're even doing a Monday night. The recommendation for this location is they actually need to build another location nearby. So then the next question is, well, where do they build? And that's where we leverage the data of their attenders and say, well, you've got a lot of attenders coming maybe 20 miles away or 15 miles away. And then you use those people to be your core to build up your second location. So there's a lot that can happen in managing this. This is obviously for campuses, but also if you ran small groups, you could see growth of small groups, even seeing different areas of the community where things are growing, or maybe a leader who's excellent or a group of leaders. Do you find in small groups that that percentage is the same, like you want to have at least a certain number, but not more than another number? Have you found anything like that? As far as uh, small group leaders or small groups? And multiplying small groups, like you're multiplying services here. Yeah, sure. So this is a little bit tricky in measuring. So small groups, we usually say, okay, what is the percentage of the number of groups of your average weekly attendance? So if we have, because you'll never know the unique number of people that attend, right? Unless you do like retina scanning or something like that, which <laughs> I wish we could do that. <laughs> I, know, I wish we could, but it's creepy since we don't know. So that, that is a limitation that we're going to have until somebody decided they want to do something differently, which I don't see any, I don't, I don't know of anyone wanting to go to that extreme yet. So if they don't, we don't know the unique number of people attending, the next best thing we can measure is, okay, we know we have a hundred groups and we're averaging a thousand every weekend. Then we're going to assume we're going to look at the ratio of those as well as on average, how many people are in a group. So if each group on average has five people and we've got 100 groups, then we're going to assume that 500 people, so we're going to assume that 50% of those that attend on the weekend are involved in a group. Some people struggle with that because it's not an absolute, right? Like we don't know for sure, but it is what it is. It's a limitation. It's something just to kind of trend and look at to see, are we seeing this increasing or decreasing, which then leads to the conversation that then leads to discoveries, right? So A lot of people will feel uncomfortable with that, but honestly, there's no other way around it unless you were to ask people to check in when they attend your sanctuary. One of the things that I found is that really metrics are valuable in the actual, but they're more valuable over time when you start to see trends or start to see things, even like in your attendance patterns, or a lot of times when I work with a campus or a church that's hitting that 80 to 90% bump, you can see the attendance go up to 90% and then back down to 70% and up to 90%. And you know, you've got a size lid. So it's the trend. And uh, even if it's not 100% accurate, if you're inaccurate consistently, it will tell you a lot of information. <laughs> yes. That's a great way to put it. Yes. 
So Amber, um, in our last few minutes, um, if someone's just getting started in this or they maybe they have a few things about attendance, but they want to sort of take it to the next level, what would be sort of your first suggestions on if someone's running a ministry or a campus, like what would be the next step after attendance and giving? What would be something else they could trend or look at? What program would you recommend they practice with? If you're needing something that's an easy tool to bring in data, Church Metrics is great. That Life Church created and gives away for free. So tell us a little bit about that if someone hasn't seen that. So Church Metrics, it's an app, it's web or app. It's on all the mobile platforms. So you could create an account, create categories. So you might have number of children, number of participants, number of whatever. You can make it whatever you want. And then you give access to your volunteers and they can log in and collect these numbers on their mobile devices. So you don't have to worry about being like on a network or having a spreadsheet or a Google sheet or somebody messing up somebody's numbers or somebody putting numbers in the wrong spot or putting in dirty data or that type of thing. It's a great tool to collect collect data. It can do some visuals. It's not super strong in that area, but what it does is it collects it very well and very clean. And then you can export that from church metrics and connect it to like Power BI or Tableau or those type of things, or just export it to Excel and do some visuals in Excel if you wanted to. Honestly, data collection, if you can get that figured out, that's like 80% of the challenge. Knowing what to collect and then collecting it well and consistently is a huge challenge. That tool helps bridge a lot of that gap. And I always tell people, measure whatever you can measure. You may decide in six months that we're not going to measure it because we didn't really gain anything from it, but you're not going to know that until you actually begin to start collecting it. So if you can count it, then start measuring it. Start a trend of seeing what happens, whether it's the number of donuts that you guys give away on Sundays, or it's the number of volunteers and you break it down by role that they're serving in. Church Metrics is great in making it super easy to collect that information and it doesn't cost anything, which is great. I agree with that. That is a great recommendation. And if you haven't checked out uh, Church Metrics, I highly recommend it. It's really useful. And like you said, Amber, it's a good kind of starting point. If you end up going more advanced or doing something more later, it's very flexible with that. But it's a great first step. And I love the empowerment to the volunteers that they can actually be entering things because many of us have, you know, we run on volunteer leaders. And so when we can equip them to just enter the data or collect things, or even I know teams who actually designate someone on Sunday morning, particularly to be the data person and they go to all the rooms and student ministries and the kindergarten room and just sort of confirm all that. It really does help make future decisions and watch to see how uh, effective your ministry is being. Exactly. Okay. So um, last couple questions for you. We ask this of all of our guests. So first of all, uh, before we get to that though, thank you so much for all this incredible uh, information. I'm just excited for our listeners to learn about it and to know about you and just really thrilled with all that you're doing and how God's using you in the kingdom. It's really powerful in such a unique way. And thank you for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us. It's super helpful. Yes. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So um, who is your favorite leader in the Bible and why? I've always really liked Moses because of his honesty. I can relate to his, I can't do this, God. (laughs) Why are you making me, why do you have this expectation of me? And him being like, wait, you need to get people to help you. And feeling inept, not feeling like you've got what it takes or that he's picked the wrong person. So I can relate mostly with Moses, I would say. That's awesome. Uh, Do you have a favorite female leader that you admire? 
Yes, I would say um, probably Brene Brown mm. is is my, one of my favorites. Um, I also like Oprah, and I know that's controversial can be controversial, but what I like about both of them is the ability to be vulnerable and take risk and maybe include vulnerability in their endeavors or trying to get people to see things from a different perspective. Um, I really value because when you're in the process of trying to do that, it is very, very scary. It takes a ton of courage um, to show up and do that. And so I get a lot of inspiration from both of them. Well, you model that very well yourself and have today. So that's a good one. <laughs> uh, when you were particularly working full-time at the church and kind of living a crazy ministry life, do you have any good life hacks for our listeners that you figured out? Don't be afraid to get to do like self-care. If you enjoy going and getting your nails done, you just feel guilty for making the time to do that. Don't like, just go do it. Enjoy that. I would say one of the things I learned was that I needed to be okay with things falling, like things falling through the cracks. And so thinking of it, like you're juggling a lot of balls. Some of them are rubber and some of them are crystal. Let the rubber ones bounce and worry about the crystal ones. And before I understood this concept, I thought they were all crystal and I couldn't let a single ball drop and it would be the end of the world. And not until my world fell apart and everything dropped, did I discover that it's actually okay being more, spending probably more energy on going, which ones are rubber, which ones are crystal, because then I know I can prioritize and move through life. And I think once I understood that, that really took a lot of the stress and the pressure off and just being able to trust yourself and ask for help, ask for things, ask for more resources, ask for whatever you need and have the data to back you up. You know, when you say this is why I'm, I'm doing this or asking for this or needing this and, and don't be afraid to show up. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? I felt like I've experienced one of the worst things in life. And so now I'm kind of like, what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> You're like, anything is easier than this. I can survive anything. That's yeah. awesome. I love that rubber ball, crystal ball piece because you're right. Sometimes it can feel like everything is a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. And that's when we really get burned out because we're not knowing how to prioritize. It makes it impossible to make a good decision. But when life crashes down, you see which ones bounce. And then those you can hold a little less loosely. They're still good. You still got to give them some momentum every once in a while, but yeah. you can really focus on what's most important. So I love that. And I love that you're living that out in such a powerful way and letting your story be useful to other people and bring healing and reconciliation. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Amber, so much. And uh, everyone who's been listening in, this has been so good. I hope you've learned as much as I have. I know we're going to put some more information in the chat below so that you can follow up with um, Amber or uh, look at that information and bring it to your teams and wrestle with it. I really want to encourage you to move forward in data visualization. It's a powerful tool as an individual leader. It's incredibly helpful when you try to communicate to your teams and to those above you that you're trying to make decisions with or help understand what's going on your ministry. So I hope you learned a lot today. Uh, we'll be on Facebook for a little bit longer if you have any more questions and we'll be checking back. So please post your questions and comments, send this on to people who might benefit from it. And we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks again, Amber. Have a great day. Thank you to Amber Smart for joining us today on the Together Project. Be sure to follow her on Twitter at A-M-B-E-R-S-M-A-R-T. And as always, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast. Head on over to iTunes and rate this podcast, comment, and leave a review for us. This helps the magic of algorithms send this podcast to more listeners. 
To learn more about Katie Cole, find her on social media at K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E or visit her website, www.katiecole.com. And if you happen to be a chick in ministry, join our Ministry Chick group on Facebook at Ministry Chick. Remember, the future can't be just male or female. It's got to be together. Thanks for growing with us.